This is the Development Policy Centre podcast, and I'm Robin Davies. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Philip Passmore. Philip is somebody I know personally from my experience uh, working in Indonesia. He is most easily described as an emergency pharmacist, and perhaps you never thought there was such a thing. But that actually doesn't fully describe what he does, and you'll hear much more about that in, uh, in this discussion. It's um, split into two parts. It was uh, more than an hour. So the first part focuses mainly on Philip's work in the aftermath of natural disasters and man-made ones too. And the, uh, the second part talks more about his work in development programs, long-term development programs, and uh, gives him an opportunity to reflect on his experience in, in working with, uh, with donors and in partnership with developing country governments at all levels. So Philip's based in uh, Perth. He um, is still active, though perhaps spending less time overseas than previously. He received a, a WA Lifetime Achievement Award from the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia in uh, March 2015 for his service not only overseas but within Australia. In addition to the enormous amount of work he does overseas, he ran a community pharmacy with partners for 35 years. He teaches at Curtin University in Western Australia and uh, does a, a range of, of other things. So we'll commence the interview here and pause just before we move into a discussion of his work in uh, West Timor, which we'll pick up in the next episode. Philip, you've been called upon more than once, especially in Bali after the 2002 bombings and in Aceh after the tsunami in 2004, to help governments deal with the avalanches of donated medical supplies that always follow major disasters. What does that actually involve? Each case, you know, I think is, is a little different, uh, but, but the one that's sort of, you know, that we both have had some uh, recent experience with is the situation in Arche, and, and I'll, I'll cover that, and, uh, you know, more than, than the other settings at the, the bombings and uh, at Jogjakarta and, and other places I've been in. The, um, just as a bit of a background, I, I, the, the sending of donated medicines and medical supplies is not a new phenomenon. It's been going on for a long time. And because of this, WHO has developed good guidelines regarding the responsible provision of donated medicines and equipment, but nobody seems to want to follow them. <laughs> the, um, you know, in my experience, in an emergency situation arises, when, when a situation arises, whether, whether humans have caused this like a bomb or, or a natural event like the tsunami, earthquake tsunami, people are often encouraged to do what they can, you know, be generous and... and uh, and, and that's what was the case in Bali and the Arche tragedy. <clears throat> People in some parts of Australia, they were asked, uh, by even by radio announcers, to empty their medicine cabinets to send medicines. <clears throat> of course, other countries also sent heaps of donated goods as well, especially you know from uh, countries where there's a form of taxation relief, and that's you know that when that's granted, when medicines and medical supplies are donated for these humanitarian programs. <clears throat> um, so, so you, you, you know, you in these situations, you're going to get lots and lots of donated medicines. In addition to the, you know, a complicating factor in our case was that the officials in Indonesia were, 
were reluctant to say no to anybody or anything that was being offered. So tons and tons of medicines equipment arrived. A great deal of the products ended up being warehoused and then eventually incinerated in a brick factory furnace. So all the essential inputs to manage donated medicines professionally incurs high costs and often the returns are very low and cause a lot of distraction from re-establishing much-needed healthcare services in general, including the pharmaceutical services. And, and of course, our function in Arche was really trying to rehabilitate something that was uh, uh, smashed um, with the tsunami. And uh, we needed to focus on that, that um, more than on, on managing um, um, uh, donated medicines that, that hadn't been... Um, called for. It takes a lot of time and human resources to arrange, as you can imagine, the security of the products, port entry clearance, seek approvals for use in particular localities, getting approvals from health officials, transporting, warehousing, sorting, developing in inventory uh, development, um, whether they're useful or unsuitable products, making decisions of quality of the products, if you know um, whether they, they are suitable. And then responsible distribution of the products if it gets that far to the hospitals and the health centres and trying to make some determination if there's human resources at these places who can actually manage these medicines that you've got to understand are not in the local language, they are you know, often always in English. And um, there's, there's uh, many, many places, of course, have people working there, doctors and nurses and others who, who can't speak languages. And... Um, and at the end of all of that, you know, there's always, you have to think of the safe disposal of these tons of inappropriate products. And and big complicating factors in Arche is that many warehouses were destroyed. Uh, so we really had incredible problems trying to solve this issue. Enterprising locals, you might remember, were quick to notice the value of warehousing, not just for medicines, but for the huge consignment of other items needed to respond appropriately to, to the tragedy. And uh, quick build warehouses started to pop up, but of course high demand and short supply uh, tended to create higher prices than normal or reasonable costs. That added costs, uh, high costs, to, uh, to any value that the donated medicines might have, uh, might have uh, gained. So securing these hazardous products uh, created, you know, huge problems. So... You know, that's that's part of the the deal we had. You know, they were unsolicited, and I believe that unsolicited medical supplies shouldn't be sent. Okay, all right. Well, that answers the question I was about to put to you. Because, yeah, certainly in the Archer case, there was a lot of material that was um, either unneeded or unusable because it was expired and so forth. So, I guess that raises the question. Are there trade-offs here on balance? Is it still useful, um, or is is the arrival of this stuff essentially a huge distraction? So it's your view, I take it, that, that yeah, this is essentially a distraction. Uh, it is a distraction, but of course I'm not saying that donating medicines is not valuable. Donating med medicines is extremely valuable if it's done properly. Like, for instance, it, you shouldn't send unsolicited medical supplies. But, you know, if you remember the case we had in, in Arche, where uh, there were needs uh, for um, particular and uh, specific products and uh, um, the tetanus immunoglobulin that um, was sent from Australia 
and the um, special antibiotics that were sent for Australia, especially for the Jog Jakarta, um, after the Jog Jakarta earthquake, uh, were cases where uh, donated medicines was extremely valuable and life-saving. Uh, but uh, first of all, it was worked out um, at the at the local level, and working with local officials, that uh, you know these products were needed if these people's lives were to be saved. And then we all worked very uh, hard together to uh, get a, get get things working so that uh, um, the, the immunoglobulin and the, and the antibiotics arrived in timely in a timely fashion and were put. To, there were people on the ground who could use them properly. And lives were saved. Could you perhaps tell the story in a little more detail about those medicines? So these were things that were, you know, not in the initial avalanche. In the case of those two disasters, the need was identified, and then you played a role in in procuring those those medicines. So maybe if you could just talk a bit more about that uh, that situation. Yes, yes. Well, well, the the situation was that, um, 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 as you can imagine, in in Aceh, there were a lot of casualties like this, and there weren't, uh, you know, as many uh, survivors as you would expect. And um, but the, the survivors that that, that, that you know that, that were in the hospitals, they uh, had wounds, you know, with flying tin, flying you know roof uh, panels and uh, glass, and and that. So they had a lot of deep uh, wounds, and uh, so. Uh, great breeding ground for tetanus, and uh, uh, of course, you know this is where the whole question of immunisation uh, comes in. Now, whether these people had had a uh, um, some immunisation and some immune response to, to tetanus, uh, it's, who can tell? But the issue was that I, I think we had a hundred and something cases, over a hundred cases of tetanus, and. Um, uh, in Indonesia, the the product that's used is uh, horse um, uh, immunoglobulin. So it was uh, this is wasn't working, and not only wasn't working in, in some people, it, it causes some uh, adverse result, uh, adverse outcomes. So the local officials and uh, the Australian uh, medical people who were on the ground um, said, "Well, you know we." We've really got to get some uh, human immunoglobulin. This is this is uh, immunoglobulin that's taken from um, people who have a high high immunity and have um, antibodies uh, against tetanus. And uh, and CSL uh, in Australia produces this, and and they you know there's stocks held for when it's got to be used for you know the the cases where. Uh, Australians um, get tetanus, but uh, um, for some reason or other. So uh, I remember being in. Um, uh, I just had just arrived, and um, it, we were in Jakarta, and uh, uh, heard that this was a possibility that we needed to get uh, this this stock, and um, and then we flew to to um, um, Aceh. And you know this was confirmed that was needed, and then there was just we worked tirelessly to uh, make contact with um, uh, what well, was contact with Canberra and the um, Department of Foreign Affairs or well, Aussie there. They they got to work and they worked with CSL and other groups uh, so that this 
these products were made available, and I think in actual fact we almost cleaned Australia out of the immunoglobulin. I suppose it just needed people on the ground who actually were were able to be convinced that uh, yes, we'll we'll do this. You know, and, but we, but we had other situations in uh, where I had to handle uh, actually getting quite. Uh, forceful, quite angry with people to say, no, we do not want your 700 tonnes of uh, donated medical supplies because, uh, um, you know, we've got no place to store them. And uh, what I had to convince people of is that the irony of it, you know, there was a... um, there was a lot of damage, of course, with the tsunami, and uh, we lost considerable amounts of medicine with the with the warehouses uh, being just uh, washed away and the medicines being washed away. You might remember, you know, the incredible uh, damage that was there, and, and seeing all these medical supplies just just ruined. But the actual fact. Uh, there was no shortage of medicine in Indonesia. You know, there was no shortage of medicine. All we needed is to have, a, a, again, a fast response and get truckloads of stuff from Maidan and uh, get stuff shipped up from Jakarta and other places. So uh, within Indonesia, there wasn't a shortage of medicine. And this is where I, I, I get a, a little bit confused that people uh, either have short memories or they... Or there is, there is a, you know, there is some economic financial benefit uh, for people who donate these medicines. I mean, the stuff that came from Australia and other places, from uh, just general people and and uh, sort of people who are who are trying to be helpful. Um, they were they were uh, in small quantities, but but a lot of stuff came from professional uh, groups around the world that uh, collect. Um, donated medicines and medical supplies, and uh, and uh, you know many companies su- supply medicines and medical supplies because they've either oversupplied their needs, they've overproduced their needs, or they've got um, you know like they're repl- furnishing a, a hospital. Uh, furnishing a hospital, so they've got lots of beds that they don't need anymore, and and you can get a tax benefit by by having them shipped overseas, and you know so there's there's a lot of incentives why people send this medicine. It's not purely um, egalitarian and humanitarian and all this business. So uh, I think I think you know it, it's um, it's it's a real mixed bag. You got some people who just send their you know, they're leftover antibiotics. I mean, I've even seen that in Bali. We saw that, um, you know, a, a lot of just uh, certainly coming out of people's medicines, medicine cabinets. But, uh, you know, again, in, in Bali, there was no shortage of medicine either because all the foreign uh, patients were shipped out very quickly and the local people, you know, they weren't, you know, there was no shortage of medicine in Bali. But, uh, again, lots and lots of problems. And in um, in Bali, there were people who were coming up from Australia carrying uh, even vials of morphine. They thought, you know, there's a bomb blast, there's a, a need for donated medicine. So they, some of them were nurses who worked in doctor surgeries and and, and others, and um, who came up with 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 uh, narcotic uh, injections. And they then because I was there on the ground with say there and uh, uh, they were coming and say, oh, you know, I've got these, what should I do with it? And I mean, <clears throat> I thought, well, 
you know, can you imagine dealing with local authorities and telling them that, you know, you're carrying morphine around? So there's, so there's some silly nonsense that goes on with, with trying, to be, trying to be helpful but, but hardly wise. So, you know, uh, we, we need to always remind people that um, please ask first, you know, and um, don't just send uh, donated medicines. Now, what, what I find really interesting, thinking back to the time of the Arche response, the sort of role that you play, the role that you describe, it, it is obviously so essential. And yet it's not as if there were 10 or even 5 Philip Passmores running around in Arche. There was just the one. And this was a huge international response. And within this response, there seemed to be very little thought given to the issues that you've described and, and the need for the sort of role that you played. I find that surprising and fascinating. I, and, I, and it makes me wonder, in the case of other disasters, let's think of, say, the, the Haiti earthquake in which Australia mm. played mm. no role. Mm. But mm. Yeah, was there a Philip Passmore? I wonder. It's, it's a fascinating mm. situation. Well, you see, this is, this, you see, you know, it surprises me too. But uh, um, I, I was actually, in many ways, I, I played a role of being the encourager and supporter of the, survive, the local survivors who, who had been working in the pharmaceutical sector there. They, quite frankly, they, they, they'd just gone through this tsunami and this terrible burden that they were carrying. Um, you know, many of them had lost family members and uh, here they are being called back by their government to, to get back to work, you know, to, to get on with the job. Well, you know, can you imagine they having to deal with screaming, uh, ranting and raving foreigners who come and say, well, where's this medicine? You know, I've got, I'm seeing patients down, down at the foreshore there, whatever, you know, the foreshore was five kilometres in almost, but, uh, um, you know, and I need this and I need that and all that. They were saying, ah, you know, what do we do with these people? I, you know, we had one doctor from Australia who had just flown up and, um, uh, you know, just... Started practicing, you know, and I thought, well, you know, I can't really work this out of my brain. But you know, to be to be courteous, I had to say, well, you know, um, please talk to this person. Please go and see this person. If if they can't help you, then come back to me, and I'll see if I can help you with something. But but uh, you know, I, I've got two hats, if you know what I mean. I'm being the sort of the the um, the guide, the tour guide, uh, you know, for a lot of these people and, and helping them to, to know where to go and, and see things. But at the same time, work with, with the colleagues to, uh, with the local colleagues to say, well, you know, we've got to start thinking of, of you know, what we've got to put in place. We had to clear out, you know, identify warehouses that were still intact, you know, dry them out, clean them up. Uh, then we had to, you know, because not only do we have tons of these donated medicines, but we also had stock that was coming in from the Indonesian, you know, the natural response to replenishing the stock from Indonesia. And um, where to put this stuff, you know, getting new shelving put in and, and uh, just really getting them to think uh, step by step about uh, re-establishing the pharmaceutical services there. And at the same time, there's, there's, there was just this chaotic um, uh, response from from the uh, from the um, foreign donors, you know, all the foreign foreign groups who had come there. Um, I think I think that I can't remember. There was over a hundred, I think, hundred, and and they weren't 
you know the the uh, well established NGOs. There was there was lots and lots of new groups who were coming in, all wanting to do do something there, and and um, uh, in many ways they were just a nuisance. And uh, I don't want to be harsh with my words. You know, I, it's not for me to judge people's motives for doing things, but but it was hardly what you call um, organised. Um, and, and really thinking of the local people, and that's the thing that struck me is that that uh, how important it is to uh, respect uh, the local people, and uh, even though things might have been quite the way that, that that we might be used to, how important it is to work with people to help them first of all establish, and then if there are things that we could do better, well, we're always looking for that. Um, and sometimes we're successful, sometimes not not quite so successful in in doing what we'd like to do. But uh, one of the one of the you know this is why I'm I feel so strongly about donated medicines that uh, they aren't cost effective. They really aren't cost effective unless they are um, uh, the unsolicited. I'm talking about unsolicited donated medicines, just not cost effective because um, uh, it's so much. Extra work, and and knowing and you know with the understanding that every nation has their own uh, national drug authorities, they have their their own rules, regulations, legislation, uh, legal system that uh, you know determines which medicines can be used, which medicines can't be used, what labelling they need to have, and all these things. Of course, in in uh, terrible tragedies like happened in Bali, Jogjakarta, and other thing, other places, uh, th- you know there are waivers, and and governments issue these waivers and say, you know, this this type of thing can happen. Like the tetanus immunoglobulin wasn't registered in in Indonesia at all, but you know we got we got proper documentation, proper proper um, authorization to use those products when they came here. Same with the antibiotics. But, you know, people often in their enthusiasm to help, they just run roughshod uh, over, over all the local laws and things like that. And I'm often, I often remind people, can you imagine if there was a disaster in Perth or Sydney or anywhere else in Australia, can you imagine uh, how the local authorities would would uh, consider um, somebody coming in from another country and and uh, just setting up shop and saying, "Well, this is I'm helping people and this is what I'm doing and why aren't you helping me and all this business?" You know, it'd go down like a lead balloon, as we know. Uh, I want to, I guess, go back a bit in time and just um, talk about how you got into this this business. So you've given us a good sense of. Um, at least one of the things you do overseas. But I guess to most people, they, they think of the pharmacist in his or her dispensary in the suburbs. Mm, and mm. you did, in fact, run a community pharmacy in Perth for nearly 35 years until a few years ago. Mm. So how, right. how did you get involved in international work? Heather, my wife, and I bought um, a small pharmacy um, uh, in a rented property in December 1973. And um, uh, we moved that business to our own newly developed medical centre in 1976, long time ago. Uh, that business flourished, I'm happy to say, and by 1979 I was looking for some new challenge. And uh, although I didn't initially recognise that the challenge came in December 1979 um, after I responded to an urgent call for a pharmacist to go to Thailand 
and that was to assist with managing the medical supplies for that, uh, for World Vision, uh, for that, you know, to respond to that um, huge influx of people from um, Cambodia and, and uh, or Cambodia was called then, and um, Laos. Remember, this is, you know, for people who might be hearing, this is the uh, end of the, uh, this is the mop-up time after uh, Vietnam invaded um, Cambodia and um, um, the um, Hmong people, particularly the Hmong people from uh, Laos who had been the CIA um, uh, supporters um, or supported by CAA to uh, work on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, um, they were fleeing um, to Thailand. And uh, um, so I, 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 you know, I, I had this business. It was nearly Christmas, and uh, um, my eldest uh, child was just about to start school in the February of 1980. And um, um, within about 10 days of hearing this call, um, you know, there's a long story to that, but about, about 10 days I was in, I was in Thailand at this, um, uh, trying to help out. And I had volunteered for three months uh, because um, by after three months um, uh, they, uh, World Vision had, had found another pharmacist who was available longer term. Um, so I was in, in Ban Vinai mainly because um, because of the short time I was there, you know, because remember there was camps, huge numbers of people on the camp, uh, Cambodian border, uh, Thai-Cambodian border, but um, there was a rapidly growing population up in Ban Vinai refugee camp, and that's in Loy province in northeast Thailand. Uh, I think the population grew very rapidly from about 13,000 to 42,000 in, in, in extremely short time. Uh, so I, I, I was in this camp, and, and uh, which rapidly grew in population. And I... I um, um, well, I suppose what I did, I learned many things by the seat of my pants. That's the way I've described it. Um, I I just got to it. I I decided that I wanted to live in the camp rather than travel almost two hours back and forth each day to uh, to the uh, accommodation that other people had. And um, so I I learned I learned a lot of things that that sort of stood stood um, stayed with me. Up until this time, you know, I mean, we, we the, some of the things I learned, the 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 um, the basic uh, re- importance of them in mani- managing medical supplies haven't changed. So, um, um, you know, things like um, uh, program management in emergency response situations, supply chain management in remote areas, cold chain management, staff training and delegation of duties. Um, you know, all had to do this in a short time, and uh, you know, also to understand the politics, I suppose, of emergency responses. And again, I was the only pharmacist, and uh, because I was the only pharmacist, I had to mobilise and train refugee helpers to perform many of the tasks. We broke down tasks into small areas of which each individual was trained, and um, so in the end, if you can imagine. We had a, you know, doctors there. Some of them were, were refugee doctors, and others were foreign doctors. And uh, I were, and and we had a, a pharmaceutical service running in this remote and and um, quite basic um, basic um, circumstances. 
And but but I had these often young people. They were young people whose education had been uh, interrupted in uh, in Laos, and some of them were sort of equivalent of probably year nine, year ten. And um, but all of them, you know, were were keen to to do something. So uh, if you can imagine. Uh, I broke down all of it. Made it made like a what do they call it a, a um, assembly line, like an assembly line, you know. Um, uh, so from receiving the prescriptions to counselling people as they went out the door, um, and in between all of that was uh, um, prepackaging medicine. I, I got doctors to to um, to prescribe as much as possible uh, standard uh, products and standard uh, standard dosages for um, um, particular diagnosis. You know, almost like if you think of this is what WHO really promote is, is um, um, standard treatment protocols and, um, and, and then, you know, the supplies to match those standard treatment protocols. So we... Because of you know the huge numbers of people who came into the clinics each morning, um, you just didn't have time to be you know packing medicine. So we had pre-packed medicine, and because many of the people were illiterate, we used um, uh, labels that we got from Central Australia for illiterate um, Indigenous people, and we we used the morning, noon, and night um, stickers and. Uh, um, you know, we did initial injections of antibiotics in the in the pharmacy. That was a pharmacy um, uh, task. And uh, all in all, we we had a very comprehensive pharmaceutical service. And as I say, even to the point of having uh, uh, people outside. So when people left, there was a real, often a grilling of the of the families as to how they were going to use this medicine. And did they understand how to use the medicine? So I, w- I was very chuffed, you know, and, and very proud of the of the team that we had in the pharmacy. But I have to say that uh, in a short time, uh, I lost most of the staff because they hopped on buses and either went to France or to the uh, United States. So we had to start all that over again. So anyway, you can imagine that, you know, I learned lots of things and... Uh, um, not only that, I had to deal with UNHCR, uh, who who was supplying the medicine. So I had to keep um, good good relationships and and to seek uh, lots of um, uh, support. You know, from we just put in inventory lists and uh, receive great trucks truckloads of stuff, which had to be properly warehoused. I was um, I had to oversee the building of a warehouse. As well, so this is all in a, in a short time, and um, um, kept me very busy, as you can imagine. And um, but but from that, um, um, I suppose I, I learned I have learned many things. But um, uh, the encouraging thing for me was to learn that the skills I had uh, as a pharmacist and as a manager were vital to a team approach in the provision of emergency and preventive health care to, um, to vulnerable people. And I learned that emergency responses should only be in place for the shortest possible time before rehabilitation and restorative programs need to be implemented. 
often often I've seen over the years of my work where um, emergency situations carry on for too long. You know, you've got to you've got to um, change. Uh, you know, if you haven't sort of settled things down in three to four months, or maybe six months at the absolute outside, then I, I think you've got a real problem on your hands. And um, and 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 at the end of that time, uh, people often need changing. You can't often you you can't have the same people doing the work of at the emergency phase, and then um, uh, think they they can then switch over to be rehabilitation. Workers and or even development workers. It, it, uh, it's something I learned very quickly, and in in a way, I was instrumental in trying to get people to uh, um, to move on. And and I, in the end, I I did move on, and uh, uh, you know, and and had had recommended that um, um, to World Vision that uh, they either stay there and change their whole whole approach, or um, you know, um, because the same same um, you know, the same procedures for emergencies is different to long term rehabilitation and, and long term development. So, um, and and people get bored if they you know if if they are emergency type people, um, they get bored in doing development. So, and from there, I um, I. Um, um, but, but from there, I was asked to come back. You know, I'm jumping ahead of myself a bit here, but uh, I, I went for three months, but World Vision asked me to come back after that three-month period. Um, um, and uh, I got um, uh, quite excited about that because I thought, you know, that was a challenge that I would like to do. But you asked, how do I juggle my, you know, the business as well as, as that? Well, that's what my wife asked as well. I was excited about going back, and she said, well, you know what? What has happened to you? Have you got cerebral malaria or something? You know, she sensibly reasoned that we had three young children, successful and rapidly growing business. Surely the challenge is enough. Uh, how could we manage and maintain the quality of the pharmacy while we were away? Anyway, at that time, I uh, the answer came to us by selling half our successful business to a trusted pharmacist's husband and wife team. Um, the lady, Marie, uh, the wife, had done her internship with us and managed the pharmacy extremely well whilst I was away for that initial three-month period. And I, I'm happy to say that this couple are still our, our dear friends and they, uh, they and others purchased our share of the pharmacy in the business in June 2007, which was you know, uh, where I finished being um, very much involved in the community pharmacy area. So here we have two things happening at once. I've got a community pharmacy. I'm very much involved in the management of that and, and the uh, operation of that, uh, including you know hands-on dispensing skills, but a lot of management of stuff as well. And um, um, and and at the same time, able to use those skills in overseas work and um, in development type situations, emergency situations. So uh, they complemented. You know, um, um, complemented each other, and uh, I was very happy about that. So you've talked about that transition from emergency response to development assistance, and yeah, absolutely, it requires different people, different approaches. Um, but again, you're unusual in that you you are both people. So you, you've done a lot of emergency response, um, 
but sometimes you've you've stayed well into what is really more a development assistance phase. And in other places, I'm thinking, for example, of um, Eastern Indonesia, uh, Nusa Timur, Timur, you've you've played a purely development assistance role, also in Papua New Guinea. Um, So I'm interested in, I guess, that aspect of your work. I I remember that in Arche, you you seem to be very consciously approaching your emergency response work in development mode, thinking quite far ahead, right? That's right. Uh, yes, well, I, that's another point. I mean, the the um, anything that you do in an emergency response, you should be thinking longer term. I mean, you you don't implement things. You know, you um, you you must think of the overall um, overall program and and what are your aims overall. So that does necessarily uh, make you think um, past the initial phase, but. But of course, as, as I've said before, many people can't think that way, and they can only think um, right in this emergency phase. So often, it requires a change of of staff. Um, but you know, I, I I'm thankful that I'm, I'm able to was able to to have that role. And um, let me just go back a little bit too. After I, I um, came back, and I worked I worked in Thailand for up until 1984. And uh, knowing knowing the sort of the scene for overseas uh, development work uh, that you needed, you, you know, you needed pieces of paper. So I went and formalised uh, the what I'd learned in Thailand in in emergency response and in rehabilitation and development. I, I went and formalised that into a master's degree in the UK at the Centre for Development Studies in in um, in uh, Wales, Swansea, Wales, Wales. And Cardiff, and um, so that that was helpful. So that so that really formally set up uh, the fact that I had a business, I could, uh, and I had formal, um, you know, formal development type uh, qualifications um, uh, that, that I could have two jobs. And essentially, that's what's been in my life. I've had essentially two income generating jobs in the pharmacy and in, in development work. So I'm, I'm a, I am, you know, extremely thankful and I know, you know, there's very few people who have had the, the opportunity of, that I've had uh, because, you see, I've been able to remain independent. I haven't had to um, rely on on a another group being my employer and... Uh, uh, this has enabled me to be quite flexible, like, and I, I make conscious decisions because I had an income stream from the pharmacy. Um, I was then able to do a doctoral uh, research, which, uh, because the scene was changing in the in the consulting work, that, that uh, in, uh, you know, especially developing countries weren't interested in in bringing in consultants who didn't have a doctorate degree because all of them were told they needed a doctorate. So, um, you know, I, I went and did the doctoral research, which I enjoyed very much, um, but, um, uh, uh, and I learned things too that helped me um, more in, in technical matters with, with pharmaceutical planning and management. But uh, So these are the, uh, you know, and, and in the end I had three components to my pharmaceutical work, which is the academic, the public health consulting, and the um, uh, pharma, you know, the uh, community pharmacy 
uh, dispensing and management work. So, and and I had that up until essentially I retired, and and now I've what's just remaining is the uh, um, public health work that uh, that I don't need to have a, a license to do. If you know what I mean, I of course because of the di- when when I sold the pharmacy, I gave up my license to dispense, but. Um, um, so that that's that's how I've been able to manage it, and and uh, you know moving over to NTT was an interesting interesting exercise, um, um, purely development, and it was development at a very vulnerable time, which uh, again made me learn lessons that that you know to do development well, it's got to be an ideal climate for you for you to be able to achieve what you want to achieve. The, in many ways, going to NTT was almost like uh, a rehabilitation or, or change time because at that same that time, um, the national government had recently decided to decentralise many functions, as you you, you would know, um, and all of the functions were decentralised to the districts. And this essentially left the pharmaceutical sector at the provincial level disenfranchised, and they weren't very happy. And uh, they there was a lot of clamouring to retrieve influence and to carve out a niche uh, to have influence, um, you know, in the districts. But uh, in NTT, it was also over the districts. <coughs> so these created uh, some some interesting circumstances. The provincial health director at that time had very definite ideas that anything the project did must go through the province, and uh, that curtailed some of our really chosen activities in the districts. And um, the the enormity of the change thinking and change procedures that were needed, especially that that that, that decentralisation uh, implementation mode, uh, required a much longer period. Than the usual donor-funded periods, and, and that's another lesson learned. Is that that the, uh, you know I, uh, we can talk about these things later, but but you you you, you know doing development is a bit like bringing up children. It takes takes you know and and working with, with people. It takes lifetimes sometimes to do these things, and and um, there are some. Uh, of course, we all talk about uh, you know you have to have exit strategies, and there's a whole lot of jargon about that. But at the end of the day, um, I think we have to make some very tough decisions about where we're going to support and where we're going to have perseverance and where we're going to go in for the long term. Uh, that's that's just, to me, my personal experience. You know, you, the if we go in for short periods, let's let's call it what it is. It's relief and rehabilitation. It's not development. And, and, and I'm very much for... Uh, thinking positively about relief and rehabilitation because it saves lives and and it can change things um, for the benefit of of, uh, of vulnerable people. So I think uh, you know we've we've for all of a sudden you know maybe maybe even in the 80s and 90s it became a dirty word to talk about relief and re- rehabilitation. But uh, I'm not a I'm not a, uh, a believer in that. Uh, there's some very good examples of where, and you mentioned about me, me doing relief and rehabilitation with a development um, um, uh, perspective, and I think I think that's extremely important, and I think it can be done, and it should be done more, so that you truly can work, move over to a development mode when 
the climate is right. And when you've got people around you who who really want to change, who who respect uh, um, the the changes that you're proposing, uh, they themselves feel comfortable with the changes, and uh, and 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 more importantly, they have. They have uh, the authority for the, to make the changes or to oversee the changes, and they themselves don't feel threatened. And uh, so, you know, to do to, to make these incredible changes that are needed, you, you need to have a very very stable type um, environment. Uh, which, and I, you know, again, um, in many of the projects, this is not this is not. Um, it's not, you know, it's not easily found. It's not always there. Uh, so in, in NTT, you know, we had to curtail our thinking, but, you know, we did achieve some very, very good outcomes. But, of course, I'm a, I'm a bit of a... Um, um, I'm enthusiastic and I like to see more change uh, more quickly, but, uh, again, I have to keep on reminding myself that it takes a long time to, to get these, these, uh, these mm. outcomes. We'll break the discussion there, and in the second part of this podcast, uh, we'll come back to a discussion of Philip's work with the provincial government of uh, Nusa Tenggara Timur in eastern Indonesia. Meanwhile, you can read my written profile of Philip Passmore um, if you go to the Dev Policy website, devpolicy.org, and search on Aid Profiles Philip Passmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs>